Welcome back to Life Group in Term 3. We're about to start episode 18 of our study on the book of Romans. And we're praying that the Lord works powerfully in your group as you meet this term. Before I begin, please pause the video. Read today's passage, which is very short, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And then have some discussion around the questions that I've posed on the screen. Welcome back. I hope you had some good discussion. And I'm sure that you'll agree that the first 11 chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans has been an incredibly detailed presentation of Christian belief. And I can assure you that you will not come across such a sustained theological and academic treatise on the gospel anywhere else in the Bible. But this begs the question, why didn't Paul stop at the end of chapter 11? Because the next three and a half chapters are intensely practical rather than theological or doctrinal. They have to do with God's will for changed relationships, both with him and also within the Christian community. Why is there this change from belief to behavior? Before we answer the question, I'd like to notice you to notice three general aspects to chapters 11 through to chapter 15, verse 13, this intensely practical section of the book. The first thing to notice is that the section doesn't have a personal and internal focus. It is concerned with the believer's place and interaction with God's family and society. It's looking at the externals. Secondly, all through the section, Paul links theology to life, doctrine to action, belief to behavior. For example, it is in view of God's mercies and internal belief. We believe that he has offered us certain mercies. It's in view of those that we present our bodies as living sacrifices. It is because we are members of one body that we serve one another and so on and so forth. And then thirdly, the thing that we notice is that throughout the section, Paul refers directly or indirectly to Jesus' teachings. And you can have a look at the screen and just pause it if you'd like to see the correlation between Paul's teachings and Jesus' teachings. It's very obvious that he was shaped by the teachings of Jesus Christ. So let's go back to the question. Why didn't Paul stop at the end of chapter 11? And after all, we could have moved on to another letter of the Bible this term. The reason why is that it's very easy to make belief a personal matter and a purely internal matter. And that's what culture and society would like us to do. That's what they would have us do. It's your belief. You keep it on the inside. You keep it, make it your internal matter. But the truth is that belief is not a purely internal matter. What you believe will inevitably transform the way you live. Otherwise, you don't truly believe what you profess to believe. Okay, now with this introduction to the whole section in place, let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which has to do with belief changing our relationship with God. He starts there, our relationship with God. In verse 1, Paul makes an appeal. Let's find out to whom it is addressed, the reason for the appeal, and the content of it. In other words, the whom, the why, and the what. Let's dive in 
to the whom. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And you'll see on the footnotes in your Bible that means brothers and sisters. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So it's addressed to Christians. Do you remember the olive tree analogy in chapter 11? Paul doesn't distinguish between Jewish or Gentile branches. He is addressing all the flourishing branches of the olive tree, whether they sprouted from the tree or were grafted in. So this refers to all Christians, whether Jewish or Gentile Christians. Why? Why does he make this exhortation? Look again at verse 1 for the reason for the appeal. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That word, therefore, connects the appeal to everything in chapters 1 to 11, but in particular, the mercies of God that have been revealed in chapters 1 to 11. The mercies of God in this context are the privileges and the blessings that accrue to us as believers. For example, remember what he said back in Romans chapter 8, that God works in all things for the good of those who love him. He talked about the fact that we can be more than conquerors. He talked about the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God. These are all, or an example, or a handful of the mercies that accrue to us through Jesus Christ. And so these mercies demand a response. Remember what Paul, what we said about Paul linking doctrine to action? Well, this is an example. In view of God's mercies, do something. <laughs> what is it? What are we to do? The first thing that we are to do is to present our bodies. Under the Old Covenant, God asked his people to present animal sacrifices. But under the New Covenant, we are asked to present our bodies as a sacrifice. This is what he says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Why would he add those words, holy and acceptable? In what, in what way are our bodies holy and and acceptable. We often think of our bodies as being the seat of all sorts of bad things. But according to this, they are holy and acceptable. Well, with the old covenant, the animal presented had to be perfect. And this illustrated that we deserve to die for our sins unless a sinless substitute could be provided. And Jesus was that sacrifice. Significantly, when we trust Jesus to be our perfect sacrifice, we become holy and acceptable to God. Our bodies become holy and acceptable to God. There's no need to live with shame. Holy. We're holy because God has cleansed us. He's made us clean. He's washed us by sacrificing Jesus. But not only are we cleansed, but we've also been bought by God. And since we've been bought by God, we belong to him. He paid the price. Therefore, we belong to him, which makes us holy or set apart as special for God. God's special possession. God's special and holy belonging. Acceptable. What does acceptable mean? Not only are we holy, but we're also acceptable. Our right standing with God has been restored. He now accepts us. We can now come into his presence. Christ's perfect life record has been counted to us 
We've been justified. It's just as if we never sinned. Now, the idea of presenting your body is thought-provoking because we often challenge people to give their hearts to God, the heart being the center of the emotions, the will, the beliefs, the spirit, the soul. And folks, don't get me wrong. We must commit our hearts to Jesus. But the evidence of true inner commitment is our outer transformation. Belief is expressed in the body. We know that the heart has been changed if the body and the way it's used is changed. And as we act on our beliefs, we reinforce them and they become steadily stronger. Just cast your minds back to chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. You could even turn there. Paul's describing there the fallen state of humans by describing the way they use their bodies. That's a significant thing. Their fallenness is expressed in the physical. So their tongues practice deceit. Their mouths are full of cursing. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Then in chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, Do not present your members all the parts of your body. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. So let's summarize a little bit here. To present your body as a sacrifice means to recognize that God has a right to tell you how to use your body, how to treat your body. In short, he has a right to tell you how to live. And this is why Paul describes your body as a living sacrifice. You are to offer the sacrifice of your body in all areas of your life, in the area of recreation, in the area of family, in the area of friendships, in the area of relationships and dating, in the area of your business. You are to offer the sacrifice of your body in all those different areas of your life. Nothing, in a sense, is spiritual because everything is spiritual. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but what I'm saying is we can't say that only one particular area of our life is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. Now, what can we learn from Paul's claim that to present your bodies as a living sacrifice is your spiritual worship. Let's just start with that word spiritual. The translation of the Greek word logikos, from which we get the English word logic. So that word that's translated as spiritual comes from the Greek word logikos. And logikos can mean either reasonable or rational. So if it means reasonable, then what he's saying here is that our reasonable worship would mean that the only logical response to God's mercies is to commit our entire lives to him. If God expressed his mercy by paying for you to be saved from eternal death, if he bought your life, surely it belongs to him and you should live accordingly. That's the only reasonable response. Rational. I think that Paul is adding an extra dimension here. Um, Jesus said that our worship should be, this is in John chapter 4, verse 24, that our worship should be in spirit and in truth. Therefore, 
it's imperative that the offering of our bodies is determined by the truth. And of course, truth is apprehended by the mind. So worship that is shaped by truth is rational worship. Keeping in mind then everything that we've said about verse 1, what do we learn about worship? And of course, this is going to help you um, help to explain maybe some of the questions that you have from the discussion at the start. The first thing is that worship is not what happens on Sunday alone. We often refer to praise and worship. Praise songs are fast songs. Worship songs are slower songs, more devoted songs. Is it only worship songs that enable us to worship God? No, it's not what happens on a Sunday alone. Every part of your life needs to be offered up to God as a sacrifice of worship. Your entire life is, if you like, a worship song to God. The second thing we learn is that worship must conform to the truth. And so this means that when we look at the songs that we're going to be singing on a Sunday, we make sure that they conform to the truth of what is taught in the Bible. And if they don't, then we don't sing the songs. So what are we to do in view of all that God has done for us? Folks, we're to worship him with our bodies in all areas of our lives. But there's more. Let's move on to verse 2. What I'd like you to do before doing that is just to take a short break. Um, maybe well, I'll do whatever you do in a short break, but um, add some discussion to it by answering the following questions. Why is a renewed mind crucial to transformation? What do our beliefs affect? And then how do we renew our minds? So just spend some time discussing that. Welcome back. I hope, I hope you've had some good discussion. We're going to be talking about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So Paul starts off by saying, do not be conformed to this world. What does he mean by that word world? He uses it as a catchword for everything that is unrighteous and against God. Think of it this way. The world has patterns. In fact, it has patterns of all kinds. It has patterns of belief. It has patterns of behavior. It has patterns of culture. But these patterns, if they are worldly patterns, were not designed by God. They were designed by rebels, both people and maybe even more scaringly, scarily, spiritual beings that are opposed to God. And therefore, we must not be conformed to these patterns. The Greek verb, be conformed, is in the passive voice, which means that unless we resist, the conforming is going to happen to us. Unless you resist, folks, you will be squeezed into the world's mold and the result will not be godlike. We're constantly swimming against the stream. And unless we swim against the stream, we will be carried by the stream in a direction that we don't want to go. Therefore, Paul writes, instead of being conformed, instead of being forced into the world's pattern, instead of being carried by the stream, but be transformed. There are two choices. You can either be conformed or you can be transformed. And that verb 
be transformed is also in the passive, which means that it happens to us. God will actively help us in this process of being transformed. God is in the process of transforming us. But that doesn't imply, folks, that we should be passive. We must work with God. How? He tells us by renewing our minds. That word mind refers to what we believe. It refers to what we think. Significantly, the Bible often refers to the mind as the eyes of the heart. That's because your beliefs affect your emotions and your will. And these things, your emotions and your will, in turn affect your health and your behavior. It all starts with the mind. The mind affects all of these things. What you believe affects all of these things. So referring to the mind as the eyes of the heart is metaphorical. It's comparing the danger of poor eyesight to that of false beliefs. Poor eyesight, false beliefs. If your eyes are bad, they might inform you that what you think, uh, what you think is a harmless stick is actually a snake. If your beliefs have been corrupted by the world, they might inform you that it's okay to sleep with your girlfriend. Therefore, renewing of your mind is the process of challenging wrong beliefs and replacing them with the truth. With the truth. Folks, I, I can't emphasize this enough. What invariably happens is we observe what is going on around us in the world and then we take those observations, what we see, what we hear, and we play them through the lens of our beliefs. We tell ourselves a story to interpret what we've observed. And depending on the story that we tell ourselves, that affects our emotions, it affects our will, and it affects the way that we act. We often call it the path to action. The path to action. Observe, story you're telling yourself, emotions, actions. And folks, we've got to check to see whether the story that we're telling ourselves, the way we're interpreting the world around us, is based on the truth or not. And if it isn't, then we need to reject the wrong beliefs and replace them with the truth. That's what the renewing of the mind is all about. It's the process of the three R's. Recognize the lie, reject the lie, replace it with the truth. And of course, the truth is contained in the Bible. We need look no further, folks. Here we find a record of the teachings of Jesus and the way he lived. We also discover what God said to all sorts of people over thousands of years. We find out how God acted. We find out what he's like. We find out what he likes and what he dislikes. That's why we must constantly be turning to the Bible so that we can recognize the lie. Reject it and replace it with the truth. Now let's have a look at the purpose of being transformed. He says that we do this process, we engage in this process, that by testing, and here it comes, you may discern what is the will of God. The purpose of transformation, folks, is an ability to discern God's will. And notice that the discerning of God's will requires testing. We must constantly test our thinking, our beliefs, our decisions by checking to see whether they line up with the Bible and whether they line up with our renewed mind. 
the words good and acceptable. We need to discern what God's good and acceptable will is. They seem to imply that God's will here doesn't have to do with, for example, where I should live, but rather how I should live. It doesn't have so much to do with whom to marry, but rather the type of person I should become to make a good spouse, the type of person that would be a suitable spouse, and the way to conduct myself in relationships, for example, with the opposite sex before and after marriage. Folks, our beliefs must and do shape our lives. And Paul is saying, if you believe that God has been merciful to you, and he, he has been incredibly merciful to us, the only re logical response is twofold. First of all, offer your body as a living sacrifice to him. Present your body as a sacrifice means to recognize that God has the right to tell you how to use your body, how to treat your body, in short, how to live. This is why Paul describes your body as a living sacrifice. You are to offer the sacrifice of your body in all areas of your life. Recreational life, family life, relationship life, work life, the whole thing. Secondly, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Folks, we do that by reading the Bible regularly. We do it by studying it with one another. We do it by listening to people who are gifted and uh, with the ability to teach the Bible. We're trying to find out what the truth is. Because when our lives conform to the truth, our emotions conform to the truth, our actions conform to the truth, our will conforms to the truth. And we will see the difference on the outside. Folks, we want to be a transformational church. We need to take this seriously so that we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ from day to day. So that we're not the same people today that we were a year ago and we're not going to be the same people in a year's time that we are today. Trust you've enjoyed this session. I look forward to being with you in the next one. Goodbye for now.